Hello, it's Zanele, and I'm dropping in to tell you what you can expect from this episode. It's a family affair, meaning it's just us, no guest, and I'm going to be sharing a story with you that is so special to me and so close to my heart, and that also happens to be turning five years old this month. I'm so happy and so proud of this work. Uh, To this day, it still defines me as a storyteller, as a writer. And I won't give too much away other than that because I'm about to read it to you. You're also going to hear interviews that I recorded while researching the story. Please note that back then I was not a podcaster. I was a writer. And so my recordings sound like recordings made by a writer and not like the interviews that I conduct for this podcast today. That means you'll hear plenty of interjections from me, me clicking my pen when I start to think really hard, talking out loud as I'm taking notes, and a bit more of a raw behind-the-scenes look at how I work as a journalist, and in particular, how I worked as a very new, very green investigative journalist who threw my heart and soul into piecing the story together because I knew that it was going to be special. Without further ado, let's get into the story. And all I could remember was my dad coming home in tears. And the only name he could mention was Lati. On the middle of that fighting, suddenly you, 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 you become uh, 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 aligned to the people that we are accusing. That's why I'm saying that your house are built on top of the graves. Prove it to me. We did it. Because of uh, Remember, Denifer was top people at the There were government officials, there were members of parliament, there were a lot of uh, big people who were living in Denifer estate, even now. So basically, you wouldn't make more My dad died a premature death, and he fought for those graves. And that's all I have to say. The only man you ever said to me would lie. Dotted around the upmarket neighborhoods of Fourways, crumbling graves hide in plain sight alongside busy roads and outside the boundary walls of townhouse complexes. They belong to the people who once lived and worked on hundreds of farms that made up northern Johannesburg before it became one of the city's fastest developing and most expensive areas. The graves are among a handful of burial sites that have remained in place since property investors began developing the area in the 1980s. Since then, developers have removed thousands of graves to local cemeteries. The graves are at the centre of a long dispute between private property developers who own the Danefin Golf Estate and the poor black farm workers who were moved from the land in the 1970s and 80s to make way for it. For the farm workers, The graves, some of which date back to the 1800s, are their only tangible link to the land that they were denied formal ownership of during apartheid. 
The interrelated network of families who own the graves have lived in the area since at least the 19th century. They are collectively known as Amandebele, and their presence in northern Johannesburg dates back to the splintering of Shaga Zulu's chiefdoms. So, for Mposo Spilman Ngoma, Four Ways will always be home. Welcome to Golden City. I'm your host, Zanel MG, and I love a good story. This podcast is a collection of the greatest stories I've ever heard about the city of gold, Johannesburg, South Africa. In each episode, you'll meet a different Joburger who will tell you their own true stories in their own words. All the ups and downs, adventures, lessons, wins and losses that make life in Joburg truly interesting. This concrete jungle may not have mountains or beaches to compete with the natural beauty of other South African cities, but the diverse and amazing people who call Johannesburg home make this golden city shine bright. What a story. How do you feel about that? Tell me more. Not the four ways we know today, the flashy suburb characterized by endless construction and roadworks, malls, townhouses, where neighbors hide out behind high walls, the rural, quiet four ways, where Mgoma once roamed the fault, played in the Yuxke River, and walked barefoot to the historic Vidkopen School, known then as the Vidkopen Bantu School. Ngoma grew up on a plot of the sprawling 600-hectare Zebafontien farm, where the gated estates of Danefern, Danefern Valley, and Stain City now sit. He can still point out the exact place where his family compound stood, where he was born, and later initiated into manhood, even now that it's been transformed into Danefern's golf greens and mansions. But to access the property, he'd have to have his identity document captured at the gate and sign in as a guest of a resident. He's returned just a few times since Danefern opened in 1992. Ngoma, who estimates that he was born around 1950, was the third generation of his family to live and work on Zievafontein. He was named after his paternal grandfather, a wealthy man with more heads of cattle than Ngoma could count, and two wives. His grandfather became a labor tenant when land was seized from Amandebele and given to white soldiers returning from World War I. Hundreds of black families that were dispossessed in that way stayed in the area or under the white people. As Ngoma put it, Ngoma is related to many of them in some way. The black people who were spread across the Everfontein were a cultural mix of Abatswana, Abasutu and Amandebele. The Debele settlement spread all the way north from four ways into land Syria and the cradle of humankind. They're a close-knit community. Many of them share a few common surnames. The Mathangus, the Siemelas, the Ngomas, the Sitoles. 
Amandebele who, over generational cycles of dispossession, have been pushed out of the area. Now only their graves remain, as symbols of their former way of life and monuments to a community whose history has been completely sanitized from the area. The graves are now nothing more than unremarkable heaps of caked earth, stone and wildflowers. The few that remain after hundreds of others were either removed to local cemeteries or buried under the strip malls, petrol stations and complexes that make up four ways today. When they did still live on Fontaine, each family buried their loved ones in small informal graveyards on their property that became part of the homestead. Goma remembers that around 1957, when he was seven years old, his father and baby brother both died within months of each other. They were buried in the small family graveyard when Goma's grandparents and other relatives who had died long before Goma was born also lay. The graveyard was a part of daily and spiritual life for the Ngomas, a place where they visited Ugupasha to talk to their forebears and seek wisdom and guidance from their ancestors. Ngoma thinks back on rural life fondly, but his memories are undercut by the bitterness of black life under apartheid. The passbooks that they carried everywhere they went that limited their movement, the control that the white farm owner exerted on their lives. Goma's father was limited to keeping a maximum of four head of cattle. Bamgoma says that back then, they had no choice but to see the white man, especially the white farm owners who employed them, as ahead of them or above them. No memory is as bitter as the wave of evictions that began taking place in the 1970s, when property investors began taking an interest in Fourways as an extension of the nearby Santon, already taking shape as an affluent residential and business district. Goma's family was evicted from Zeeverfontaine in 1975. Uh, um in a wave of evictions that began in the 70s and lasted right through the 1990s. Apartheid-era eviction trucks, known as GG because of their number plates, 
carried his people to unfamiliar and faraway places such as Soweto and Alexandra townships and the Bantustan known as Gwandebele in modern-day Mpumalanga. Goma says the evictions were so sudden that his uncles who took the cattle out to graze in the morning were not there to return them in the evening, and they roamed. The families lost all that they could not fit on the beds of the trucks. How were we supposed to take our graves? He asked me. Wagunzi Mandesos Katis at Tonzanzi Manjalo, who's the Wafigis Katis of Utimanje, Fanele Sugan Amanda, Le Campane, Tengela, Poverty, Jonik, Yasu Sarab Shungu, Gileondao, Sassin and Comos, Wheeler, Sasu Sarab Shungu, Watonagala, Wutin and Como, Ebe Fanele Wutti, Sis Lai, Chewabanzi, Manezimfu, Ningu, Sashia Gileondao, Mina Wabanzi, Magim, Moba, Nang Sevens, a Wutin and Buyam Sibenzini, Nisigelo, Indao, Ekaya, Wutti. Umama ngamboni, umama agayini kamere, minangayini kamere, bati akfanela ngakutingimbona. You see, at first the Ngomas tried to resist their forced removal and they stayed put in their houses. But Bab Ngoma says that one day the contractors on site dug such a deep trench that he could not cross it to get from his house to his mother's house. They left soon after that. They did continue to visit their graves on the construction site, however, until one day they found that Dane Fern's two-meter-high boundary wall was complete and they could no longer access the grave sites. They never saw their graves again. When Terence Lanvier called me on a Saturday morning in September 2017, he warned me not to reopen the graves issue because I would find, quote unquote, a lot of aggression. Lanvier, whose German name means defender of the land, said that the Danefern grave issue was, quote, sensitive and difficult for everyone involved, adding that, Amabungane, the investigative journalism center that I was working for at the time, was doing such good work exposing real criminals. I was just beginning to investigate claims made by the Zeverfontein families that Danefern had failed to meet the terms of a negotiated resolution over the removal of the graves. 
This was despite the golfing estate announcing in 2006 that an amicable resolution had been reached. Lanvia, just like members of the Ngoma and Sisole families that I had spoken to, pointed a finger at a man named Lucky Mushmane for corrupting the resolution proceedings. And who is Lucky Mushmane? Mushmane is an activist and funeral parlor owner who elected to represent the Zevafontein families in negotiations with Dane Fern for compensation for the loss of their graves, homes, and livestock when they were evicted to make way for the development. The Homeowners Association, which had just taken over the running of the estate from Jonik in 2000, found itself facing a public relations debacle in 2004 when Mushumane alerted local and national press to the fact that the Zievefontein graves were still missing and demanded that the Danefern Homeowners Association account for where they had been taken to. Supported by about 100 Zievefontein families, Mushumane organized and led a march to the front gates of Danefern, where they placed coffins on the ground and demanded that sangomas or traditional healers be allowed access to the property to connect with the ancestral spirits and locate their mortal remains. Mushmane claimed that he too had relatives buried on Zevafontein, but other members of the tight-knit Zevafontein community said that he in fact did not. They said that he had grown up on a neighboring farm and had attended the Vidkopenbantu school with Ngoma's nephews and nieces. In Deep Slut, a township nearby Danefin, Lucky Mushmane was known as a well-connected and outspoken ANC activist. Why why I was figure Lumfana Batula Gimushimani was Chelugti. Amatuna wenu ladan vagachela kona asesusi we lapo. Eh asusi we asiwen as mami lugudi manje, babungo mastela guti, lento si melenga manyao, mwaba sasim temba si sazuguti ulakim shaumbe mwaba mfana o kulelanga pasway to uza senzela into a right. Was chelugti fanele si suge la si suge siem Isiye etenfeni, siyo kulumisana nabo, siyo kuti amatuna bawase gupi. Spielman Goma believed that Lucky Mushumane's activism and his work in the funeral industry is what fueled his passion and interest in the case of the Zevafontein graves. Neither Jonik nor the Danefern Homeowners Association could account for the missing graves. And that's allegedly when Lucky Mushimane used his burial industry knowledge to trace what could have happened to the graves. He allegedly produced a tender document from funeral services company Avbob that detailed that they had been contracted by Jonik to remove 590 graves from Zevafontein in 1987. Those burial records reportedly showed that Avbob removed 363 black people's graves and put them in eight waterlogged mass graves 75 kilometers away in the township of Mamelodi, north of Pretoria. Avbob also removed eight white people's graves and reinterred them in individual burial sites in the nearby Midrand Cemetery. In 2004, 
A representative of Janek, Busi Pilane, made a statement to local paper The Fourways Review, defending Janek's actions as in line with the laws of the time, the apartheid laws of the time. Privately, according to documents that I saw, they told Terence Lanvier that they were willing to defend their actions in court. That left the Danefern Homeowners Association to diffuse an awkward, inherited mess playing out right on their doorstep. Already, rumors were beginning to swirl amongst residents that they were living on top of more than 200 graves that remained unaccounted for. Terence Landvier told me that, quote, the Homeowners Association had no legal obligation to deal with the issues of the grave, and they considered obtaining a court order, but I decided to handle the issue personally. After extended negotiations with Moshimane, who was elected to represent the Zeverfontein families, Danefin announced the resolution of the grave issue via a press release in 2006. And these were the terms. The Zeverfontein families had elected for Mushimane's funeral company, Zuhu Funeral Services, to conduct a reburial of the eight mass graves from Mamelodi Cemetery to Four Ways Memorial Park, a graveyard about three kilometers from Danefern. He also got the contract to erect a wall of remembrance at the new burial site. And finally, when the reburial was complete, Danefern would allow the families to conclude the process in accordance with their culture. After 20 years, they would be allowed inside the estate to touch the ground, reconnect with the ancestral spirits, and carry them to their final resting place. This was a cultural rite called Ugulanda, meaning a collection. Danefin told the families that they would place 1.5 million rand in trust to cover the costs of reburial and that payouts to Tsukho funeral services would be handled by the state's attorneys. It was a very lucrative contract for Moshiman. He charged high fees for services, including 400,000 rand, over $21,000 for the administration of collecting affidavits and death certificates from the families. Soho Funeral Services was paid 28,000 rand for a handful of sangomas or traditional healers who performed divinations at the gravesite on the day of the exhumation. It's a detail that stands out to anyone who's familiar with the way Izangoma work. For such services, they would have usually accepted an offering of a couple of hundred rands. Remember also that this was back in 2004, when everything just cost much less. All in all, Tsukhu Funeral Services was paid 1.2 million out of the 1.5 million rand that Danefin pledged towards the process. The other 300,000 went towards what Mushimane called a cultural fee or wake fee, 3,000 rand per family that they would be paid to cover the costs of a traditional wake at home after the reburial. I asked Terence Lanvier about the decision to pay the wake fee into Tsukhu Funeral Services account, and he told me that, quote, We had the mandate from the families to accept Lucky as their representative, and at all times they insisted we deal with him only. In my investigation, I found that that is when some major breakdowns began in the process. 
Spielmann Goma says that on the day that the families gathered at the Witkopen school to collect their 3,000 rand cash payments, Mushmane was not present. Goma was paid 3,000 rand for his father, baby brother, and grandparents' graves. He said he watched as some families were given 3,000 rand, some families were given half of that, and other families were paid nothing at all. According to a handwritten ledger that Bamgoma showed me, 100,000 rand was paid out that day. A Tsukhu employee explained to the families at the school that Danefern had paid less than the original amount that they pledged, and so not all families would be paid. Then, Lucky stopped answering the community's calls. A few months after the reburial, the Ngoma family visited the new burial site and inspected the memorial wall, which they described as a mess. The names listed on the wall were a combination of people missing from Zeverfontein, living people, and people buried elsewhere. To this day, the wall remains incomplete, with bare face brick showing through where a plaque is missing. Bamgoma says that when he tried to contact Dane Fern and follow up on what happened, they would not speak to him. During our interview in September of 2017, Terence Landwehr said that he was not aware that Lucky Moshimane had not honoured his financial commitments to the Zeverfontein family and that the Homeowners Association was also not aware that the memorial wall had not been completed. He said all of those details had been, quote, managed by Lucky. But... A few weeks after the exhumation, Dane Fern was made aware of yet another loose end left by Lucky. The owner of the Fourways graveyard contacted them to tell them that he was still owed 160,000 rand for the new burial plot. He had been unable to contact Lucky by phone. This money had already been paid out by Dane Fern into the trust account. Terence Lanfear said that he consulted with the other members of the Homeowners Association and they decided to, quote, pass the hat around again and settle that amount. On that charge, you say you gave everyone what they were owed in terms of wake fees. You deny that I, I, you kept some of the money that was owed to people for wake fees. No, 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 man. I, I, not as far as I, I'm concerned. Yeah. Not as far as I'm concerned, man. Yeah. You're talking 15 years ago, but not as far as I'm concerned. Then, when did they appoint Matlamu, that they machado, or they appoint me? Mm. They appointed me, mm. my company, to do the job. Yeah. So, if, man, I made a profit out of it, is there anything wrong? When I initially made contact with Lucky Moshimane in 2018, he completely denied defrauding Dane Fern and the Zeverfontein families. In fact, he went as far as to claim that the whole process had gone well and that all parties were happy with the outcome. It was only when I confronted him with the Homeowners Association's account and with the Zeverfontein family's account that he then changed but no, his this story. Is the thing. This is the allegation is that there was not transparency. The families say the money came out. They didn't get everything. And then from then, 
and 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 when also when you say you know that this is a sentimental issue and it was never about money, the fact is that David paid your company a lot of money mm. to move the graves, to do the consultations, to do everything. You know, I've seen the records. They did pay Soko a lot of money. Correct. So people, that's the allegation. People feel like, oh, Lucky got a business opportunity from this, but we were left. But I'm a businessman. High and dry. I'm a businessman. But it wasn't I a was, business situation. Ma'am, ma'am, this is the situation. Mm. Uh, the, the company, Delvin, appointed me. Mm. I appointed me. I tend up for the job. I got the job. Was there a reason that I must share the money with them? When I give what belongs to them? Oh, well, they say they didn't get what belongs to them. No, no, ma'am. The, what belongs to them it was the work fees they got. They got. Of that. They got. I've got evidence of that. So, ma'am says to me, oh, Zanel, I'd like it. They say you got a lot of money. Ma'am, yeah. those were my transport I was using, yeah. my facilities I was using, yeah. my company I was using, my effort, my time. Who else was supposed to be paid? So, ma'am, in life, you happen to grow because people, they started now to have issues when you, you, you progress in life. He said he had been unable to pay the Zebrafontein families and honour his other contractual obligations because Danefern had simply stopped paying him the money. He blamed the Zebrafontein families for the breakdown of the process, claiming that they had become greedy and tried to take more money than they were owed. Remember, you cannot sell a grave. It does not a business. Graves are priceless. We are not going to make a monetary scheme here. We are not going to make money with our ancestors. I'll put my foot on the ground. Once we can do this, it means Rona, and that what I don't want to belong in. Remember also that Lucky owned a funeral parlor. Graves were exactly how he made his money. Everybody, Lucky, Bamgoma, and Terence Lanvier kept referring to a copy of a signed final agreement that recorded all transactions and connections with the graves and was kept in trust by Dane Fern. So I emailed David Wise, who was chief executive of Dane Fern back in 2018, but had not yet joined at the time of the grave dispute. Initially, David invited me to come and see the final agreement. And then he changed his mind and elected to answer questions via email. He said that according to the records, the Homeowners Association had paid just over a million rand into trust before they stopped making payments because they, quote, discovered Mushmane to be a con during the process. On that point, he would not elaborate and instead referred me to the people who had negotiated the settlement. Enter Sam Sitole, Bob Spielman Goma's nephew, who also sat in negotiations with Dane Fern. Did you know any of these people? Sam and I were inspecting the memorial wall at the new grave site at Four Ways Memorial Park. Because some of the graves were still, some of the, the, the people when they died were still young. Mm. But uh, the, the names, in my, the, the, the elders, they could tell you. There was no but Lenny They will definitely tell you. Because we were living around the same area. They will tell you there's no this person like this. There was no this person like this. But I think the idea was just to multiply the numbers and so How do you feel about how this like how your family's it's a, it's memory a, is treated? Oh, it's very bad. 
is very bad because it's uh, oh, it was so difficult. Mm. Not for me because at least I could do something. I could still progress in my life. My kids could still benefit from my hard work. But for those people that they've hoped that they will finally get something out of. Mm. Oh, that's so difficult. Mm. And what was more difficult, it was that when I first bought my brand new car in 2005, people think that maybe we got the money. That, that was a thinking behind it. And today, when you live in this particular area or this estate, they'll question you, how did you get there? They'll never think, maybe he's working hard, he's doing this and so forth. That was uh, the reason and thinking behind it, that I might have got a share out of it, I remember the Ngomas when they building the houses, they, it was also that thing. There, there might have been some money that, because they were on the committee, that they might have got something out of it. So it was a difficult thing. Oh, there were people who suspected you guys, that maybe yes. you benefited yes. and they didn't. Yes. Not mm. much. People will just talk behind closed doors or in the corners and so forth. But most of them, they're just talking to you. Is your grandmother still no, here? No, on. she passed on. And your mother? Passed on. Passed on. Mm. Were they alive during all of this going on? Yes, yes. Sam said that until I informed him, he hadn't been aware of Dane Fern's decision to cut off Lucky, nor did he know what they had discovered about Lucky during the process. But while working alongside Lucky on the committee, he had developed his own suspicions. When did you feel like you, you started to stop trusting Lucky? Before we went to, for his memo, uh, to Mami Lodi. Mm. Before we started going to uh, Mami Lodi Cemetery. That's right. Actually before then, and, but it was very difficult to convince. So I was being labeled like maybe I'm against Lucky. So something similar to that. And then later on the... So I even stopped to go to the meetings and so forth until I was called back to, to challenge Lucky. That was so difficult, so difficult, so mm. difficult. So you were one of like the first people who started to... No, I started questioning. I said, no, something is not right. What well, did you suspect? You know, like when I say, if the, if the plan say we move from A to Z, mm. let's stick from the, from the plan moving from A mm. to Z. You understand? Suddenly from A we move to, to G. Mm. Say, so what about, we don't even get to Z. That was a problem that I was questioning about. Mm. First thing, if you say we've got 100 families that they deserve a serial million money, and you, if you requested 3,000 rand per family, that means it's 300,000 rand. So if you go to the community and give them 1.5, you say they are supporting actor, but to Dane Fern, you didn't say that. Then it becomes questionable. That's how I started saying, no, something is not right. That's why I said then they they they, they and, and they just wanted to to conclude this thing and say we're done. 
They didn't care. No, they didn't care. They just about how the yes, families yes. were actually yes. compensated. Because I think also in terms of the values of their houses. Remember when you sell a house, and then knowing that there's this land thing, grave thing, that house must be might be built in on 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 the grave side and so forth. Obviously, the buyer will question that and say, "Hey, there's still this unresolved thing. Why do I need to buy before?" They, they like the Ngomas, they will never achieve anything. They, they're too old to start again at what else they can do. Nothing. Spielman Goma has lived his entire life within a 10 kilometer radius of Zebrafontein, and he has witnessed the area change dramatically over three decades. When I was writing the story, I remember reading a blog post by Property Sales Group, Private Property that proclaimed Fourways the new North. I think the old North was nearby Santon. Fourways was undergoing its second property boom since the 1990s and was attracting billions of rands of private and commercial development. In the middle of it all lies the iconic Danefin Golf Estate. The blog announces, calling Danefin hot property because of the lifestyle that residents enjoy including bird watching, whiskey tasting, and a bridge club, plus a high-tech security system with biometric access and surveillance. According to private property, property prices are rising every week, and two properties had recently been listed at a historical high of 28 million and 30 million rand each. Now, it's not apartheid's oppressive laws, or even the double-layered, electrified boundary wall keeping Spielman Ngoma out. He has been priced way out of that market. In 1995, a year after democracy in South Africa, the Ngomas were among the first beneficiaries to receive stands to build homes in Deepsloot a township built by the ANC government to accommodate Fourways' growing squatter population, largely caused by the evictions for private development. So, while Danefern's 1,200 households enjoy about 320 hectares of golf estate, private hiking trails, and other exclusive facilities, just six kilometers away, the majority of residents in Deep Sluts share communal taps and toilets and live in shacks or government housing. It's a simple and stark illustration of the legacy of dispossession that started with the generation of Ngoma's grandfather and will not be righted during Ngoma's lifetime. When we say Zevenfontien, we don't differentiate between Denfern and Stein City. It was one place. And it's actually Zevenfontien with an S, not a Z, they just changed the name. That place is Zevenfontien. No S. Oh, like Zevenfontien. It was a sweltering December 2017 day in Deep Sloot when I sought shade in front of Bam Goma's home with him 
his younger brother Daniel, and his cousins Simon and Barney Sitole. All four men were in their 60s and 70s, and the grave of Simon Sitole's grandfather is still intact in nearby Cosmo City, dating back to 1888. Mm. The Sitoles lost graves when they were moved to Alexandra Township from a portion of Zebrafontein called Riverglen, where Africa's most expensive luxury development, Stain City, now sits. Lucky disappeared before handing over government records of the reburial to Four Ways Memorial Park. So the cemetery was unable to issue proof of grave ownership to the families. That means they now have no claim to the new burial site or to the remains there. We are old enough. We know that area. We herded cattle on that land as young boys. We don't know if all those graves were moved or if some are still there. We would stumble across graves when we were herding and the elders would warn us not to touch them. They didn't consult on where to find the graves, which means they're likely still there. As we sat together, the men told me that there was not a door they had not knocked on, looking for help to get reburial records for the Mamelodi graves and trying to find ways to get Danefern and Lucky to account for why the reburial process was left incomplete. They said they'd been to the public prosecutor, the Hawks and even the police to open a criminal case, but that the case had simply disappeared. They suspected because of corruption. The families waited in anguish for 30 years to find their graves, interrupted by the brief hope that Lucky gave them, only to find themselves back where they were before. Now when the family gathers, they always ask about the latest with Dane Fern and Lucky. The men told me they don't have the heart to visit the memorial wall at the new gravesite. The wall is a physical reminder of an incomplete process. Without having conducted Ugulanda, they know they will not be able to connect with their ancestors. Lucky's conduct casts doubts over every aspect of the reburial. And without proper records, the families question whether the remains reburied in four ways are, in fact, from Zeverfontein. With the collective social, economic and intellectual capital that Danefern's representatives brought to the negotiations, they find Danefern's version of how things went down unsatisfactory. Lucky never brought a report to reconcile all the funds that Danefern donated to show what happened. After they paid all that money, why didn't they call him to account for it? So we suspect that Lucky squandered funds. So we suspect Looking back, I missed an opportunity to ask Terence Landveer who the real criminals were. 
that was what I had set out to do as an investigative journalist. Find the bad guys, hold them to account. Lucky Mushimane is an obvious target. He allegedly took advantage of a desperate and disenfranchised community, profited from their story, and is accused of stealing from them. Danefern was just the beginning of his operations in the area. Tsukhu Funeral Services removed graves from nearby Estain City next door, some of which also belonged to the Ngomas, and had business operations removing graves from private developments throughout the northern suburbs. At the same time, Lucky's other company, Jumbo Security, was contracted by the city of Joburg to remove squatter camps and long-term occupants from farmhouses in the northern suburbs on land that had been earmarked for private development. But I didn't take an advantage to grow myself into that as an advantage that, no, I did deals with Ten City, I did deals with not I never did deals with Denfen, I did deals with Lanzelia. Raypax, Ruby Ray, I did deals with them. Uh, in the, the building construction and, and security, I was doing security in State City since the beginning. And City of Jobe. I spoke to people in informal settlements, attorneys who'd worked on eviction cases, and people who had been evicted by Lucky. They remembered him as a sellout who worked with private developers to remove them from their homes. When I interviewed Lucky in 2018, it seemed as though his sins may just catch up with him. He was facing tax evasion charges for Jumbo security. Perhaps Lucky Mushimane's most honest statement to me during a conversation that felt like it was peppered liberally with untruths was, quote, I became successful not because I went to business school or had any training. I met these white men and I dared to speak with them and I did to learn to think like them. But what drew me to this story and what kept me going through all the years and ups and downs of investigating and writing it was not a commitment to exposing Lucky's individual wrongdoing. It was about the bigger system at play for me. The real crime was not contained in a single moment or act. It played out systematically over generations through actions sanctioned as legal by colonialism and apartheid. The real crime was that under apartheid, companies like Jonic were allowed to take what they wanted from black people. And after apartheid, people like Mushimane were able to just take advantage of them. The system also allows those with power, like white South Africans, to decide how much they want to be involved in the collective project of redress. They hide their privileges behind high walls and shield themselves from the ongoing realities that keep apartheid alive, such as inequality and crime. When Terence Lanvier told me that Amapungane was doing much more important work exposing, quote, real criminals, I was struck by how invested upper class and white South Africans are in the idea of wrongdoing as corruption or the standard sense of stealing public funds. But if journalists and all of us gloss over the opportunities to tell complex stories such as this one, then we do not tackle the subtle and not so subtle behaviors and attitudes that keep South Africa trapped in the legacy of apartheid. Wrongdoing is the continued benefit you reap while hiding yourself behind high boundary walls that shield you from your complicity. Racism is wrongdoing. 
At the time of publication, the Ngomas and Sitoles were still determined to seek compensation for the loss of their land, livestock and graves. They were waiting for the reopening of the stalled land claims process, although they were honestly not confident of a positive outcome. Those graves were our title deeds, they told me. On part two, the next episode, the day I hailed a cab as a fashion writer and reached my destination, an investigative journalist. We also learn more about the life and mind of Lucky Moshimane. I remember the day when I met Dada for the first time. He was very close to Boston Matia. I don't know, but guys, give this guy his graves. The Ziva Fontaine families finally get to confront Lucky. Lucky, it's great that we have you on the line and thank you for, for listening to the segment um, and for calling in. And I share some important updates about Bob Spielman and his family. Thank you for visiting Golden City. If you liked this episode, like, follow, subscribe on all social media and streaming platforms. If you love this podcast, give us five stars. I'd love to feature you on Golden City. To submit your story, go to www.goldencitypodcast.co.za. See you next time.